Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello, it's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. Before we get into Brendan's show today, I just want to say a really huge thank you to everyone who's given to our Christmas donation appeal so far. Really, it's because of you that we're able to write all the articles and produce all the podcasts that we do at Spiked. It's because of you that we're able to be free and fearless and independent and free for everyone to read, which I think is really, really important to us. So to those who have donated so far, a big thank you, as I say. And to those who haven't yet, there's still plenty of time. Please do go over to spikes-online.com forward slash donate and give whatever you can if you appreciate our work and want to help us do bigger and better things in 2023. As you may know, we've also got a special offer on at the moment to those who donate £30 or more. We get a whole year's subscription to Spike Supporters, our exclusive donor community, where you can comment on articles, access live events, and all sorts of other exclusive perks. So once again, that's spiked-online.com forward slash donate. Have a very Merry Christmas and a brilliant New Year. And now, back to Brendan's show. when someone like Keir Starmer says that you shouldn't say that only women have a cervix. That really makes us feel that we are living in chaos. It's like, is there no one who is going to say the truth? I would never vote for someone who took the knee to this ideology because the mermaids information was well known, the Tavistock information was well known, the treatment of women like J.K. Rowling and Kathleen Stock was well known. All these things were well known, and yet Keir Starmer goes on television and says, oh, you shouldn't say that only women have a service. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Graham Linehan. Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I feel like this conversation has been a long time coming. Uh, I'm very glad that it's finally here. I probably um, didn't want to do it for a number of years because of fear of getting uh, conservative germs from Spiked. <laughs> I always had the, a kind of thing about Spiked. But then, you know, like a lot of um, conservative media, you started publishing feminists while the left started silencing them. So I had to kind of recalibrate my um, opinions on you guys. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing that. We're very pleased to hear that. I've never considered spiked conservative, but we can get into that later because I do want to ask you about what does it mean to be left wing? What does it mean to be progressive? All those questions, I think, have been so violently thrown up in the air over the past few years, and I find it quite fascinating. But we can get onto that in a moment. I feel like there's so much for us to talk about, it's hard to know where to start. But where I did want to start with you is just to ask you, of course, about all the work you've been doing over the past few years in relation to the crazy cult of transgenderism and the impact it's having on women's rights, on gay rights, uh, on the safety of women and girls and other issues that have been raised by people like you and by uh, some of the feminists that you and I know. I guess the first question I want to ask you is, do you think things are getting better on this front? So at the moment, we've got mermaids being rather taken to task for some of its um, problematic activity, shall we say. We're seeing more women raising questions about the trans issue and the idea that a man can become a woman simply by clicking his fingers and saying he's a woman. 
Eddie Izzard is not going to be the Labour candidate for Sheffield. So it, it does seem that in various different ways, interesting, potentially positive things are happening. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I mean, I guess my um, situation, I'm in this uh, stage at the moment where I'm waiting for about for about three different things. I'm moving into a flat in the new year. I'm, I'm waiting to get be, be allowed back on Twitter um, and... Uh, you know, there's a project that I've worked on that's completed, that's uh, happening soon. So for me, I'm in this kind of um, netherworld where no matter how much good news we're getting, it's it's kind of hard to be a part of it, you know, um, especially when my circumstances are are what they are, you know. So, so yeah, so I guess I have to separate the wider fight from, from what I'm going through myself. And the wider fight, yes, it's great. It's, it's, it's incredible how, how far we've come. Um, it, it now seems to me that it's almost becoming more unfashionable to be, you know, caught being the kind of bullies of the gender movement. People like um, Joanne Harris at the Society of Authors and Clara Villani, who, who attacked the children's author, Rachel Rooney. You know, it's just getting a little bit more uncomfortable for them uh, to so freely uh, smear women as bigots um, for these concerns. The concerns are you know, they're clearly, they're clearly valid concerns, you know, and, uh, you know, but one by one, we're seeing also, like, The Guardian was forced to write about mermaids, finally, uh, a story that, you know, we, like, my lowly substack has been talking about for about, you know, two or three years. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think in the UK, I do think we're a kind of central Jenga block, and we showed, I've heard this now from many other uh, people in Iceland and, and Italy and Spain, but UK women really showed the rest of the world how to fight this stuff. Mm. And and they really showed the rest of the world how um, quietly it tries to get things done. So uh, that was a bit like a red rag to a bull to, to British women. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't like to do anything quietly. Um, and uh, just kind of exploded the whole thing and, and suddenly everyone could see what it was and someone like Jean Hatchett who's a very very good example of the kind of uh, you know really hardcore feminist we have over here taking a photograph of Eddie Izzard coming out of the women's toilets I mean something like that was like a huge moment because it's it's it revealed his um, you know his casual boundary transgressing um you know, which I think is just what we what we usually would associate with with just your bog standard entitled white male, you know. So yeah, so another good thing is that the more people see of it, the more they don't like it. You know, the Channel Four boss talked about Jordan Gray was was it was great to see other body types, you know, diverse body types. But Jordan Gray is not exactly a wonderful example of human diversity. Once again, it's more an example of a white man who's absolutely at the top of creation at the moment, as far as Channel 4 executives are concerned, um, getting his cock out and being praised for it. It's extraordinary, especially after, you know, Jerry Sadowitz was cancelled for the same thing, you know? It's brilliant. It's kind of like this, this, this is a movement that doesn't survive scrutiny. And the last year especially, it has had a lot of scrutiny. And it's not turning out well for them, you know? That's a very useful kickoff point. But I want to come back to that in a moment. I just want to ask you a bit more about how things might 
be changing. I think the two examples you give there are very useful ones. Firstly, Jordan Gray. So he's the um, comedian, supposed comedian, and supposed uh, woman, uh, actually a bloke who has had a few bits of surgery. And he was on Channel 4, as you mentioned, on Friday Night Live, took all his clothes off, played the piano with his penis, and across the liberal media, he was being praised for uh, giving expression to a new form of body and Everyone referred to him as she. Everyone referred to his penis as her penis. I think that was one of those peak trans moments when people started to think, what's going on here? And the other example you give of Eddie Izzard breezily walking out of the women's toilet, that photo had a big impact on me as well because, of course, we know that these things are happening and feminists talk about why it's a problem that men can go into women's toilets or women's changing rooms or domestic violence shelters and so on. But to see it in an actual photograph, I think, was quite confronting and quite important. So those two examples and others brings me on to something I wanted to dig down a bit more with you, which is the misogynistic component of the trans movement. Now, to me, and I presume to you as well, it's quite obvious why this is a misogynistic movement, not only because the women who stand up to it are called the most horribly misogynistic names and they are demonized by uh, sexist mobs online, but also because the whole idea of a man becoming a woman, as if that's a very easy thing to become. So the root of the trans idea is a misogynistic one, isn't it? Misogyny is the oldest form of bigotry and it's existed forever. And and what seems to be kind of tied into the into the ideology of the trans movement is a belief that women are just some sort of broken form of men. That if you have a man who's, you know, mentally sick um, and dysphoric, that is the same as being a woman. It's an extraordinary argument to make. Um, this was another eye-opening moment for me when I saw um, so-called progressives comparing these men to black people, mm-hmm. saying, um, you know, trans women are women just like black women are women. Yeah. You know? And then, of course, there's, like, I, I did a stunt where I changed my pronouns and joined a lesbian dating app and got on because I looked no different from all the other men who were trolling women by getting on and um, uh, calling themselves she, her, and calling themselves lesbian. So this is not just a misogynistic movement. This is a homophobic, racist movement as well. I mean, here I am talking to you, uh, Brendan, which will probably result in the usual guilt by association and denunciations by the people I used to pal around with, you know. But the left seems unable to think at the moment. They seem unable to think about these issues and they don't seem to be able to recognize that they are the ones who are now anti-gay. They are the ones who are now anti, uh, anti-minority. anti You know, a few years ago, when I was still a good, a good kind of left-wing soldier, um, I remember getting into trouble for talking about uh, the burqa. And, and, um, and I got into terrible trouble for that as well from these same people who who used the phrase, I'm sure you remember it, um, it's their culture to explain yeah. why their husband can wear shorts and blazing sunshine, but the wife has to wear an all-over black covering, you know? Um, and that was thrown at me again and again. It's their culture, and, and you were, again, you were just kind of being accused of being a bigot. Now, of course, these same people are arguing that men should be allowed to go in, into female spaces, which will make those spaces impossible to access for many Muslim and, and Jewish women, you know? The left have just completely, they haven't just lost the ability to think, 
they've kind of abandoned it with gusto. I think it's possibly because the tools they've acquired in fighting for this stupid um, ideology are ones that kind of help them across the board. You can use thought-terminating cliches, you can use shaming, you can use guilt by association. All these things can keep you in a, in a position where you don't have to look at any issue. You just have to uh, pull out whatever ar- uh, weapon is in your armory and use it against your enemy, you know? So um, that, that can sustain you for a while, but it can't sustain you forever. And I don't know whether you saw, but um, there was a brilliant uh, debate between Matt Taibbi and Douglas Murray on one side and Malcolm Gladwell and one other person on the other arguing that the, the media is lying to us, you know. And uh, apparently it was one of the biggest victories ever achieved in the, these famous debates. The, the audience went from 50-50 to 83%, I think, agreeing with the proposition that the media were lying to us, you know, and the media were, were corrupt, you know. Um, and this kind of woke version of the media, which is, I would argue, I think you'd agree that that's the, um, the the majority of the media, the majority of what we consider the media. It seems like right-wing media is um, still considered somehow niche. I'll, I'll give you the example of what I'm talking about. Like Stuart Lee is someone who uh, came came out against me, and it must have been on the basis of my activism because I haven't seen him in three years, and the last time I met him, he was he was all smiles, you know. So he must disagree with me on this issue, but he never says why or how. He never says exactly what the what the nature of the disagreement is because he can't because he knows as soon as he does start saying it, he'll be arguing for these homophobic, misogynistic uh, uh, things. So all they do is they attack without any kind of substance behind it. And I often wondered why someone like Stuart Lee isn't looking at mermaids and isn't looking at the scandals at Stonewall and and all these things that have been happening and just thinking to himself, well, maybe I've called this one wrong. And it's simply because he doesn't know about them. He doesn't consume any media other than The Guardian. And so his view of the world, like, as I say, it's only recently that The Guardian decided to let readers in on the fact that mermaids and the Tavistock are behind one of the greatest medical scandals in history, you know? But up until then, up until this point, the readers of The Guardian could almost be forgiven for not having a clue, you know? Mm. And I, like another example with The Guardian, and I, I have to remind you, like Channel 4 that promoted Jordan Gray, like um, the WEP and, and um, a lot of these organizations, the Samaritans, these are all female-led organizations. These are all women doing these things to other women, you know? The SNP is another example. You were making a very important point, I think, about one of the reasons some people don't speak out against this stuff is that they don't see the other side. And that actually prompted me to think about a, another point I wanted to put to you, which is I completely agree with that. They they are not exposed to the other arguments, to what I would consider to be the more rational, properly left-wing arguments in terms of arguing for equality, arguing for women's equality in particular, for gay equality, for the right of young gay people to grow up feeling proud of themselves rather than feeling they have to go on a conveyor belt of medical correction to turn them into their supposed true gender. You know, what we used to call fighting for gay rights and women's rights, um, they don't see the people making the case for those things against the misogyny of the trans movement, against the homophobia of the trans movement. But then another side to it is also that they've 
bought into some of this. So you mentioned Owen Jones, for example. Owen Jones is one of the leading cheerleaders of the trans idea. Many people on the left will repeat that religious mantra, trans women are women. Um, they really believe they are literally women, that you can have a penis and have some testicles and have a five o'clock shadow and literally be a woman. And when you get to that level of it, when people are saying these things, which are obviously not true and obviously deranged, really, that's when you recognize that not only are some of them not seeing the other side of the argument, but others have been sucked entirely into a new fundamentalist way of thinking that brooks no self-criticism or doubt, and they have become quite severe and quite religious in the way in which they impose this ideology on society. An interesting aspect to the kind of... uh the explosion of trans people in spaces like Twitter and Reddit and so on is simply because a lot of men's rights activists saw that they weren't getting a lot of success using men's rights activism. Apparently, uh, there was a very good speech done by a pair of women at the LGB Alliance conference where they talked about these connections. And um, and there's a, a meme or a hashtag that says, don't ask me what I was doing in 2015, something like that. And that's because so many of these guys were alt-right, you know, trolls, just having fun online and and pushing people's buttons and saying they're Nazis and all this sort of stuff, you know, which which made that that time around Gamergate and all that stuff very confusing and hard to parse for people. No one really knew what was going on. And that was actually the first time. I never said uh, anything like, you know, the way people sometimes do this online, they'll say something like, you're a man pretending to be a woman. You know, they'll 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 do that because the frustration at, at not being able to say reality gets too much for them and they blurt it out. I never used to do that because, you know, you do have to be careful. There are some people online who have dysphoria and are going through something. You don't want to unnecessarily hurt anyone, you know. But during Gamergate, there were a lot of blokes who were pretending to be women and then they were doing things like, I mean, the most famous example was uh, a thing called Operation Lollipop, where all these uh, trolls pretended to be black women online and pretended to be angry about the existence of Father's Day. So they had a thing saying, end Father's Day. So the whole thing was an operation to make black women look bad by white mm-hmm. men. And they did this by pretending to be women. And at the time... That's when I wrote to one guy, you're a man pretending to be a woman. Because at the time, we were all agreed that this was not a good thing to do. Yeah. This was not a nice thing to do. It's not nice to pretend you're one group of person and then say, I'm a feminist and this is what feminists want. Oh, what a surprise. They want men with dicks in their, in their toilets. You know what I mean? <laughs> but then the rules invisibly changed and I didn't realize, or, or the rules had always always been there. I'll do a quick pricey of Gamergate. It was basically very confusing gaming campaign, but also because it was so toxic and uncontrollable, it attracted a lot of people who were using it to, you know, uh, troll women and uh, make women frightened and, and drive women out of what are considered male spaces like gaming and so on. But but I think that was only part of it. I think there were also people within Gamergate who had spotted earlier what I only began to spot which was, oh, there's some bad actors on the left who are pretending to be women, pretending to be progressive. They're coming out with all this woke crap. They're shaming people. They're getting their friends to uh, swarm them and and cancel them. And I think that there were some good people within Gamergate who were um, trying to steer it to an area. Like, it was a big joke that it was about 
uh, ethics in gaming journalism. And this was repeated as if it was a ridiculous claim. But there were pockets of Gamergate that were about that. And there were a lot of innocent people who joined it thinking, thinking that they were helping that stuff. But as with everything on the internet, when you have a big movement like this, it's manipulated by bad actors. You know, there were SWAT teams sent to women's houses and all this sort of stuff. So, so you know, in the end, I think it was a bad thing. But then the same people, the same people started calling themselves women. And they started saying that, oh, guess who? Guess who's the most evil person? Or guess who the most evil group of people in the world? I'll tell you who it is. It's left wing feminists. And for 10 years, they've managed to make the word turf a violently abusive term for women who are standing up for their rights. Yeah. It's been an extraordinary success on their part. And and it's kind of only worked because of the nature of the internet, which means that, like, you know, a small group of people can influence a much larger group of people and really pull the wool over their eyes for a longer space of time. It's why the satanic panic didn't last for 20 years, because it didn't have the internet, you know? But this well lasts for 20 years, you know? Yeah, I think that's actually a very useful potted history because one thing that I've noticed and, and many others have as well is the hangover of alt-right ideas into the contemporary trans lobby. So, for example, I mean, just at a linguistic level, it was the alt-right that used to refer to feminists as feminazis, a word I always really hated. It was so knee-jerk and obnoxious. Mm. Um, And now you have supposedly leftish, woke trans allies who will openly refer to feminists as Nazis all the time. Judith Butler has likened uh, certain strands of feminism to forms of fascism or to being fascist adjacent. So that idea has been carried through in terms of demonizing feminism in, in that in that same way. And also just the, the abusive terminology that was used by some on the alt-right who would, you know, very ostentatiously go online and say the most misogynistic things, suck my dick, for example, that's now been replaced by suck my girl dick, yeah. which is not exactly progress, is it? Progress for them. Progress for them, yeah. You have this continuation of real a horrible hard-right animosity towards feminists and women more broadly but it's been adopted by people who think of themselves as left wing which is the most extraordinary state of affairs what what do you think could possibly shake people out of this view that they have which is that um a man can become a woman uh, women need to shut the hell up instead of raising concerns is there anything that can be done to push them in a more enlightened direction or are they a lost cause? I do think there's something that can be done. It's a very simple thing. It, it's simply more adults in the room, you know? And it's why, like, women feel such despair when someone like Keir Starmer says that you shouldn't say that only women have a cervix. That really makes us feel that we are living in chaos. It's like, is there no one who is going to say the truth and to say, you know, trans women are males with gender dysphoria and they need to be treated with respect and care and and, and all the rest of it. And yet there are certain areas where their rights might conflict with women's rights. We have to talk about them and, and hash them out properly. Like the fact there's no one willing to say this. You know, and I genuinely think you're going to find, I, maybe not for a while, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if you find that people like Lisa Nandy have kind of put themselves outside of ever being able to rule a country like the UK. I would not, never vote for someone who took the knee to this ideology. 
because like the mermaids information was well known. The Tavistock information was well known. The treatment of women like J.K. Rowling and Kathleen Stock was well known. All these things were well known. And yet Keir Starmer goes on television and says, oh, you shouldn't say that only women have a cervix. We just need a couple more adults in. And, you know, same is true of, um, well, I know you're probably getting onto it later on, but doing the, trying to do the Father Ted musical. Jimmy Mulville and Sonia Friedman should be saying to the activists within their organisations, calm down, shut up. He's been vindicated by the findings of the uh, mermaids scandal and so on and so forth and get the TED musical on. But none of these people have the qualities that you need in a leader to to take an unpopular stance once in a while. You know, it's yeah. extraordinary. And if we only had like, a few more voices doing it, it would change the whole conversation. J.K. Rowling has been left to fucking swing up there excuse my language, Brad, uh, for um, for a few years now, you know, without the defense of people like the Society of Authors or Liberty or Amnesty, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, really, these organizations, they need to be rebuilt because if you're not defending a writer for death and rape threats, then what the hell is an organization like Liberty for? I couldn't agree more. I think the the silence on J.K. Rowling from certain quarters is deafening and shameful. I I wrote a piece a couple of years ago saying that in some ways the silence of influential liberals about J.K. Rowling is worse than the people who abuse her because they're just, they're a lost cause. They have no morals at all. They are scumbags, essentially, the people who are threatening her with rape and death. Uh, You know, who would want to engage with them? But it's the liberals who supposedly care about women's rights and supposedly care about uh, artistic freedom and freedom of expression. It's their silence, which I think is is really, really shocking and disturbing and, and worth calling out. One thing I wanted to ask you about J.K. Rowling, in fact, and other people like that. I think one of the most important things about her experience, I think she is incredibly brave and heroic. I don't care about the fact that she would disagree with me on many things and that's part of normal life. But the fact that she has stood her ground in the face of such extraordinary abuse is is really, really admirable in this current climate. But in relation to cancel culture, what some people will say, and you'll have heard this yourself, well, she's not cancelled. She's still writing novels. She's still incredibly wealthy. She's got millions of followers on Twitter. She could go on TV anytime that she wants. Wisely, she doesn't seem to want to do that. Um, but isn't the point about cancel culture, and, and Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie made this point very well in her Wreath lecture, the point about it is not simply that it claims the scalp of influential people or tries to claim the scalp of an influential person, but it's the trickle-down effect it has across society. And, and in this case, the warning it sends to women at large, especially those who are nowhere near as influential as J.K. Rowling, that they had better shut their mouths or they're in trouble. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I, at the moment, I'm supporting a social worker named Rachel Mead who, who received two complaints from a fellow employee. Uh, one of them was for sharing my blog, you know? So there's like a, a real sense of kind of stasi observation over, over not just people like me, but people on every you know, level of society. And that's the thing about this is I said this in a speech the other night I was doing for the Battle of Ideas, like men have uh, benefited from this ideology at every level of society. You have prisoners who are able to move into the women's estate because they call themselves female pronouns. And, and again, because there's no adults in the room, those criminals are believed 
and escorted into the prisons by men in uniforms. It's extraordinary. Mm. Um, but with women, it hurts women at every level of society. So you get, like, I, I'm in touch with two rape victims who cannot go to uh, Scottish rape crisis because in charge of Scottish rape crisis is a man named Midral Wadha, who um, did not disclose his trans status uh, when he applied for the job, and um, and said to a, a, guilt, a podcast called The Guilty Feminist, even bigots can get raped, you know? So the two people who wrote to me said, I'm not going there. If I can't, you know, be sure I'm going to be treated by a woman, spoken to by a woman, and more, more importantly, not shamed for wanting it, then I can't go. The, the rape crisis stuff in Scotland in particular is incredibly shocking. I'm glad you raised that. The trickle-down impact of cancel culture. And I, I think what you said there is a good example because it does make ordinary people, for want of a better phrase, it tells them to kind of keep their mouth shut, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And I saw a piece by Victoria Corrin, a disgraceful piece she wrote about Jenny Murray. And there's a very revealing line in it where she's talking about how Jenny Murray is terrible because Jenny Murray is a feminist and doesn't doesn't think that men are women and stuff. And, and it was very revealing that halfway through the piece, she says, so if I were Jenny Murray, I would have left this subject well alone. Mm. And I find that so revealing. It's like there's a woman literally warning another woman not to talk or think about this subject. That's what cancel culture is. And Jenny Murray was cancelled. She was fired from Women's Hour and replaced by people who, you know, Maya Forstad are the most important feminist figure since the suffragettes, possibly. And Women's Hour, you know, only only reluctantly get her on eventually for an interview, you know? The reason people don't think cancel culture exists as well is because these people are gone. <laughs> They're not there to, yeah. to talk about themselves or defend themselves, you know? Like, one of the things that trans rights activists like to do is they like to conflate intersex conditions with the trans uh, situation. And one of the women who used to call this out regularly was a woman named Claire Graham. Uh, she has intersex conditions herself, and she um, she used to tweet about them under a pseudonym on Twitter. She's, she was disappeared. So the voice saying, hang on a second, I'm intersex. These conditions have nothing to do with trans people. That voice disappeared. So the, the narrative becomes only what these progressive, you know, cultists uh, say it is, you know. So so the trickle-down effect is like, it, it, it's one of those things, I always call it the dog that didn't bark, you know. It's like, it's like the absence of evidence is, is sometimes evidence in itself. Yeah. Four years ago, Megan Murphy was taken off Twitter. Three years after that, uh, Biden got rid of Title X, which protects women in things like single-sex sports and stuff like this. Luckily, it's been knocked back on a federal level, but he, but he tried it. Now, that's four years since Megan Murphy disappeared. Huge feminist account disappeared from the internet or disappeared from the public square, you might say. Yeah. And so no wonder the Overton window moves to such an extent that it simply stops taking women into account because the only women who were brave enough to stand up and say something were banned for doing so, you know? The Megan Murphy case, I think, is is one of the most Im important cases of uh, censorship of recent times. Because, you know, as you're well aware, the reason she was banned for life from Twitter, although she's now back, is because she supposedly misgendered a, a horrible bloke who was trying to force um, largely migrant 
beauticians to wax his bollocks, essentially. And when they refused to, he took them to um, the Human Rights Tribunal. What few people talk about now is that the Human Rights Tribunal found against him and also found that he had racist motivations. He wanted to humiliate some of these workers who were off a certain um, immigrant status. And no one talks about that. But you have a situation and I, I want to ask you about Twitter now, you have a situation where the people who at that time were running Twitter were taking the side of a man who wanted to force women of color to touch his private parts over a very sensible Canadian feminist who's incredibly intelligent and worth listening to, Megan Murphy, which shows just how warped that culture of cancellation and censorship on this issue had become. And in relation to Twitter, I wanted to ask you, where things stand for you at the moment. Now, things may well change in the next few days before this pod goes out. Elon Musk might rescue you and, and put you back. But have you heard anything? Are, are you aggrieved at not being on Twitter? Would you go back on and and, and wind people up? How, how do you see Twitter now? Oh, I see Twitter as, like, like basically, because my I've lost my income in terms of comedy, uh, My it's very important for me to get my substack out to as many people as possible. Mm. So commercially, I need it to, to keep going. But but at the same time, I don't, you know, I'm trying not to uh, check, check every day to see if I'm back. I'm, I'm waiting for people to tell me because I kind of refuse to base any satisfaction or happiness on the whims of a, another Silicon Valley guy. Yeah. Like the problem is there always seems to be someone who we have to kiss his arse, you know? And, and I mean, I remember when Elon called that guy who rescued the kids a pedophile. I was so outraged. There's probably a few tweets in there, me slagging them off for doing it and getting away with it, you know? But then like everything in this, and, uh, you know, I wonder, well, was I getting a, a one-sided view of that too? The other mixed feelings I have about Twitter is that I genuinely don't know if, if I'm going to be able to stand by 90% of the political opinions I expressed on Twitter. I'm, I'm actually kind of worried about seeing this kind of ghost of myself, who I used to be, because, um, because I'm, I'm sure I repeated the thought-terminating cliches, and I'm sure I uh, did the guilt by association stuff. And, you know, I, I, I came after Count Dankula, you know, which I recently apologised to him for. Um, and uh, even though they've been very disappointing, the celebrities who, you know, ignored my story and all the people I've been friends with through, through the years who've just now pretend I don't exist, um, I do have some sympathy for them because they were a bit like me, you know, they were just people who were believing what all their friends were telling them. And you follow one person, he follows someone else and he follows someone else. And unfortunately, amongst that number, you're always going to get some dodgy people. Uh, one great example is Parker Malloy, who I used to follow. He's a, a trans-identified male who works for Media Matters. He told another trans person to drink bleach. But I didn't know this at the time, and I was believing everything he said about the bigotry of, of this group or that group. So I just don't, I just feel like not only can I not stand by that person anymore, I feel like we all have to be forever on our guard to never become that person again, you know? And and one of the problems with the world at the moment, I think Kemi Badenoch pointed, pointed this out recently in an interview she did, we we just don't know what to believe anymore. Mm. Like, let's say another COVID incident comes around, okay? I think we're all agreed that what we don't want is the shouting and the cancelling and the uh, 
enforcement of rules that seemed kind of uh, random at times. My favorite example being when the Americans broke the lockdown to do a Black Lives Matter march. And doctors said, yeah, no, that's okay. You can do that. Because <laughs> apparently, apparently you couldn't catch COVID if you were doing something good. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's like I wouldn't buy The Guardian and it would take a lot to convince me that The Guardian has changed. Uh, since The Guardian, you know, wrote three pieces calling the Wee Spa scandal a hoax, yeah. in which a supposed trans woman exposed himself at a, at, a, at a spa. But The Guardian spent three pieces painting it as a hoax. And even after they discovered it, it wasn't a hoax, they continued to call it a hoax. And they also called the woman who reported the man, who, who turned out to be a sex offender, uh, a bigot, you know, a transphobe. Mm -hmm. I can't trust a, a, a magazine or a newspaper that will lie to me to that extent. It's hard to know what you can trust, what you can believe, and what magazines like the, or online magazines like The Critic and and um, you know yourselves and and um, Unheard are about the only things you can trust these days, along with individual Substacks. But it's not kind of good enough in a society like this. We do need to kind of get get back to some sort of central trust. And that was a very good example that Matt Taibbi said in his in his lecture. He said that Walter Cronkite was um, trusted at, at when he was around by something like 86% of the population. And can you think of any media figure now who you would trust, who could be trusted by that many? Yeah. We've had however many years of people either lying to our faces, and you, you can go back to what I think was a big... Uh, genesis for a lot of it, which was the WMDs. I thought that particular lie was a very, a very bad one not to get punished in some way. You know, even if it was just a verbal thing or some something just to say you can't do that. It's not really you can't go to war based on stuff that's not true. Um, and and it's just continued then to journalists calling Eddie Izzard she yeah. uh, and you know on on manner of things. And you see what happens to people who challenge it, like Joe Rogan. The way they tried to destroy Joe Rogan was extraordinary. And and of course many of the things that were most uh, scandalous, according to these journalists, uh, turned out to be official policy a, a little while later or turned out to be true, you know? Yeah. Like even even just trying to think about where the virus might have originated from became uh, an act that almost by mentioning it turned you into a, a lunatic in some people's eyes. Absolutely. So, so to stop the culture wars and, and people like ourselves, Brendan, and, and you know, anyone else who's who's watching this who's on uh, my side or your side or whatever the hell side we all have to have someone who we can who we can say oh well that seems to be true so you know but i saw even snow yeah. you know does the trans women or yeah. women stuff it is hysterical and i think the um the we spa thing is a very good example especially the guardian's coverage of it where they try to rubbish that story as you say this was where a man had been accused of exposing his semi erect penis as it happens to a group of women including a girl a, a minor um and there was that extraordinary reaction from the liberal media which was to demonize the woman who witnessed it and who 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 made the accusation you know i thought we were supposed to believe women that was the cry of the me too era and suddenly you don't believe women and also what was uh, really striking about that is this idea that 
flashing yourself, essentially. Uh, I wrote a piece saying we're now having people defending flashers' rights, essentially. The idea that flashing yourself in front of women is a right that trans women should have because they should be able to go wherever they want. But I think you raise an interesting point about the lack of trust that people have in the media. And the trans issue is, I think, an important part of that because when you have media outlets constantly referring to Eddie Izzard as she or the reports in the BBC and the New York Times a few months ago about a woman in her 80s who murdered a woman in her 60s in in New York, in Brooklyn, and then you get to paragraph 12 or something and, and you suddenly find out it's a man in his 80s, not a woman in his 80s. That constant drumbeat of of misinformation, essentially, I think is really starting to get to people. But I want to ask you one more thing about the silencing of women, which is something that you and I are both incredibly concerned about. And we, in our own way, we do our bit to try and counter it or to to push back against it. Um, you've already mentioned that some of this is being done by women. So The Guardian is, is edited by a woman. Um, some of those institutions you mentioned that have accepted the trans ideology are, are run by women. I wanted to ask you, maybe this is putting you on the spot, but I want to ask you about what's happening within the turf world itself. So there is now a bit of a divide emerging between um, turfs, I'm using that in its proud reclaimed sense, uh, between turfs who consider themselves left-wing feminists, radical feminists, and on the other side, turfs like our mutual friend Kelly J. Keene, for example, also known as Posey Parker, who they view as too much of a rabble rouser, too willing to rub shoulders with people on the right or, or Christians in the United States. And there have been efforts even to silence Kelly J. Keene or to paint her as a problematic person. I take Kelly J's side, because I think she's such an extraordinary organizer of women in the 21st century for an incredibly important cause. But what do you think that divide speaks to and where do you think that might go? I think there's always been an element uh, of this fight. I mean, basically, what feminists have done in the UK is, is, is as one, they have stood up against a kind of a groupthink and a, a, a real pressure to conform, you know? The pressure to conform has been intense and it is in every workplace and it's in things like pronouns and signatures and all that sort of stuff. It's an extremely powerful thing and you have to be very strong-willed to resist it. And that's what this fight has. It's got tons of really strong-willed women, you know. But the thing is, they, they don't all march to the same drawer, you know. That's why this is such a successful uh, movement in the UK because they are... I called them the other day ornery, you know, in that American sense. You know, I just see someone, you know, some kind of old woman with lines in her face and a pipe in her mouth <laughs> outside a house guarding it from anyone who, can, you know, who wanders by. There's a sense that these women are stronger than anyone else because they simply won't be told what to do. Unfortunately, then there are certain people who like to tell other people what to do, and they exist within the movement as well, you know. And it's I would have more respect for it if it wasn't accompanied by completely groundless accusations of being right-wing. Every time uh, I uh, ask to see evidence of Posey's supposed right-wing beliefs, um, I get the same kinds of answers I got from trans rights activists when I asked to see the evidence of J.K. Rowling's transphobia. It's just not there. And, and what I find really upsetting is every time 
Posey does one of these events. She gets these women up, brilliant women, women like the poet Maggie Gibson and, and Heather Brunskill Evans and, and uh, Maria McLachlan. And she even lets trans rights activists talk, although she might not do it again. She tried it once and, and the activist tried to steal the microphone. <laughs> But, like, you know, she has a principle, and she once said to me something I I was really impressed by. She said, the thing about principles is they're hard, they're difficult to maintain, you know? And when she has a freedom of speech um, meeting, that's what it is. And people can either uh, respond to the speech with applause or they can turn their backs on the speaker or whatever they want to do. But, But if you set up a freedom of speech thing, you can't just say, well, some people, I'm afraid, won't be allowed to talk about it, because... That's what got us where we are, you know? The worst thing I saw said about her, someone said she was a pound shop Le Pen, and that was mm-hmm. that really... From that moment on, I was, I was radicalised on behalf of Posey because I've never seen any evidence of that. I would ask whoever said that to present it or apologise, you know? Yeah, there's no evidence of that at all. I think one of the things that strikes me about this emerging divide or split, however it might play out, is it does seem to be driven by an element of class in the sense that I think there are sections in the gender critical movement who who came through the universities and are wedded to feminist ideology in a particular way. And I think they see this battle as being about preserving that political position that they hold and those political ideas that they cleave to. Whereas I think for people like Posey, it's much more about basically defending the rights of women and girls across the board, regardless of what ideologies they might have, regardless of whether they went to university or not, regardless of whether they've ever had a grant from some organization to hold a conference. She doesn't care about those things. It's much more, are women and girls going to be able to talk about themselves, to stand up for themselves, to go into their own spaces? So I think it's an interesting divide taking place there. Graham, there's two big things I want to ask you about, and I've left it far too late, but I'm going to get onto them now. So the first one is, I just want to talk to you about children. So we've talked about the threat posed to women, particularly to women's right to express themselves and their right to organize. But you mentioned earlier on the um, grotesque experiment, essentially, that has been carried out on children in the name of transgenderism, where we have significant numbers of young people who are presenting as Trans are sometimes having their puberty blocked, which I think is a grotesque invasion of a a person's right to to become an adult. Uh, Sometimes later in life, young women are having mastectomies. These are very often young women who in the past would have grown up to be perfectly happy lesbians. Uh, Young men are being put on uh, the conveyor belt too. And it struck me, I was reading a piece that was published a few years ago about Alan Turin. It's called Alan Turin's Body. And it describes what his body underwent when he was forced by the courts to go through hormonal treatment for the sin of his homosexuality. He became impotent, of course. He grew breasts. His body was feminized because he was given estrogen. And it struck me that what we consider to have been an abomination when it was done to Alan Turin as a punishment for his homosexuality, we now celebrate as a trans intervention into young gay men's lives. And we cheer it to the rafters. It's 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 welcomed by celebrities. It's pushed forward by groups like mermaids, who are then backed by all sorts of influential people. Isn't that one of the real problems here? The way in which young people in particular, often confused young people, are being sucked into this ideology in a way that is potentially very destructive for them? Well, yeah, I mean, it seems to be that there's two places where the ideologies seem to gain purchase and 
and kind of it percolated in these two areas for a while before breaking free. One was um, websites like Tumblr and Reddit where all these kids were going on and diagnosing each other and telling each other they were trans and stuff like this. Another was academia, American academia, which turns out to be a really corrupted uh, institution at the moment with, uh, I'm sure you know, the uh, hoax that uh, James Lindsay and uh, Helen Pluck wrote and Peter Bogosian did where they revealed that... Uh, a lot of American academia was <laughs> consisted of a fake body of knowledge, which is basically all these postmodern academics quoting each other in their in their papers. And so, basically, if you if you wanted to if you wanted to be reassured that a paper was uh, legit, uh, you would look at the references and go to this other paper that was equally ridiculous, and that would tell you that it was legit. So, um, so this kind of is where some of these kind of crazier theories started to be developed and and you know and then it hit the hit the oxygen of the western world with profiteering doctors predators who saw who you know saw an opportunity in the uh lowering of safeguarding uh rules and boundaries um and you know it just benefited so many people at the same time that it took fire and of course the internet you know lit a rocket under it and you know, we are where we are. But again, if you look at a problem like anorexia, a lot of the girls who are claiming that they're trans are apparently, there's similar um, qualities they have that would, would have been shared in the old days with, with kids who had anorexia, you know? And no wonder, you know, a hatred of your body, a, a feeling of disembodiment, and, you know, and also all the kind of surrounding weird um, mythology about suicide and, and uh, trans holocausts and all that sort of stuff, you know. So it's a very teenagery um, ideology, you know. Mm. The problem is that all these adults are going along with it again, you know, like like Keir Starmer, yeah, saying, "Well, no, you shouldn't say women have a, have a cervix." What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, we need people to be able to go, oh, okay, there's some things that are like, you know, I know the, the Caesar thing, put away childish things. And, you know, we have people who, I think a lot of the time, they're kind of held hostage by their kids. I was actually walking along uh, a tube once and I overheard a teenage boy talking to his father. And the teenage boy was saying, well, you see, that's why so many trans people have to stay undercover because if if it was discovered who they were, then they would probably they might commit suicide and all this sort of. And I could hear all the talking points that I've been hearing and I know to be nonsense being fed to this by this kid to his father. And I think that that same relationship is playing out all over the world. You know, it's a good thing to be able to look to your kids and get a view on the world that might be fresher that might like look at old problems in a new way and 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 so on but unfortunately that very key relationship where we learn from our kids has been corrupted by this absurd alien very american uh, ideology my favorite thing at a recent protest was the kids in the uk holding up a thing that said arm trans people <laughs> it's like with what with you know scones <laughs> tennis racket you know so, so it's um, yeah, it's the effect on kids, and it's the um, abdication of duty by adults that is the real problem, you know. And the kids, you know, in the end, I've seen things like uh, detransitioners, as you know, get a terrible time. Someone like Richard Heron or, or Sinead Watson, they they have they have real troubles, you know. And um, 
And they're treated with just with the most vile language by trans rights activists, you know, who hate them because they reveal it to be a sham. You know, they hate detransitioners. But the thing is, if we're going to move forward and help people who need to be helped, all the resources that are currently going to trans people really need to be going to detransitioners. Yeah, because it kind of amounts to the same thing sometimes. A lot of people have been tricked and fooled by this ideology. Some young girls thought their breasts would grow back. I tell you what, a lot of young women don't know, that if you're on testosterone for long enough, you go into the menopause 30 years too early. These things weren't told to these kids. Mm. And the most disgusting thing about the way these detransitioners are treated is you'll often see people saying to them, oh, well, we have to be blamed for your poor medical choices. I saw a thing that Navarro Media did where they instructed kids on how to lie to their doctors to get the drugs. And then they turn around and say, oh, well, because you made the wrong choices. It's it's the most disgusting movement I've ever seen, you know? No, it is. And I think the treatment of detransitioners is, is genuinely despicable. The way they're talked about, the way that people try to silence them, as you say, because they do cut through all of this and they demonstrate the harmful impact that these interventions can have on people's lives. And those stories are so important to tell. Um, okay, Graham, I want to ask you fairly briefly now about your own story and your own experience. Now, many people will be familiar with it. Of course, you have sacrificed an enormous amount for your own principles. Uh, you mentioned principles a moment ago, and your own belief that this is a a very problematic movement, a dangerous movement, one that definitely needs to be countered through the exercise of freedom of speech and the freedom to criticize and, and pushing back and so on. You've lost work. Um, I know that you had family problems as a consequence of this too. You've been shunned by the comedy elites, which I must say doesn't particularly surprise me. They're not at the cutting edge of, of, of a principled rational thought very often. How is that side of things going? Is it still incredibly difficult? Do, do you ever look at how things are going now and think, maybe I shouldn't have put my neck on the line in the way that I did. The only thing that's difficult is that the relationships on the TED musical have become very strained. Mm. You know, I'm very angry that Neil Hannon and Arthur Matthews kind of uh, gave their blessing to me being asked to be removed from the musical. I'm feel incredibly betrayed at that. And I'm not sure how we're going to get back to working together because I do think this will end eventually. And I do think we'll make the musical and, uh, I do think people will eventually do the right thing. Unfortunately, one of my problems is I've got a streak of optimism, you know, about things like this. But short term, this Substack has just helped helped enormously, you know, like I can cover this, which which is something that I get great satisfaction from doing because no one else is doing it. So I feel like it's an important resource for people in the future. Um, and at the same time, I can get paid for it. It's not really... Uh, enough to live on for too long but it's enough to keep me going until uh you know a couple of projects come through um so uh yeah and the other thing is you know i sleep like a baby you know and i, I don't know whether that can be said of some of my friends who've promoted mermaids and um i think a lot of these people these comedians frankie boyle for instance you know i think eventually they're going to be seen as uh, jesters in a corrupt court you know like like all this was going on and they never joked about it they never said except to like the last leg the other night apparently slagged off jk rowley you know 
so except to join in with with the punching at these at these women. Um, and so I think we'll look back at this phase, 2022, moving back about four years, and we'll say, why weren't people talking about it? Yeah, It was a huge social movement. It changed the world for a while. Where's all the art about it? Where's all the, you know, and, and the reason there's no art about it, for instance, let's say in the form of TV shows and films and stuff like this, is that every time there is something, there's complaints about some aspect of the representation because no one can agree <laughs> on whether, oh, it was a, did you, why didn't you have a trans person playing the blah, 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 all this shit, you know? And, and essentially everything when, when this, this subject matter is so toxic that it is instantly problematized whenever you, you approach it. The only people who could actually do a good thing about this issue um, <laughs> are tariffs and people like me. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like we we kind of understand that we see it for what it is. But uh, the only kind of representations you get, again, are representations that show you a part of the picture and try and make you think that everything's rosy when it really, really isn't, you know. That's a good point. And uh, firstly, I, I should say to listeners, that if they haven't subscribed to your Substack, they should. Oh, thank you. Um, I get it in my email inbox every day it not only does it have very serious commentary on this very serious issue but some of it's very pithy very funny uh and it's a very good read people should subscribe to that i think it's also a good example of the kind of pushback that is necessary and, and which is happening which is uh, you mentioned that there are independent-minded publications uh, like spite and others that are willing to to publish trans skeptical voices there's obviously magazines like redux i recently had genevieve gluck from redux on on the podcast and and that was uh, very popular people want to hear these opinions um but uh, uh, one more thing i wanted to ask you in relation to your own story i wanted to ask you how forgiving you will be of people because i agree with you that i'm also a bit of an optimist and i trust that in a few years time we will look back on this period and we will be shocked that young lesbians and young gay boys were being medically corrected, that women were being called every name under the sun simply for wanting their own spaces and their own right to speak about their bodies, that the most celebrated author in modern British times, J.K. Rowling, was being hounded morning, noon and night, and the political establishment and the cultural establishment said virtually nothing about it. I, I trust that we are humanity is good enough to eventually find all those things deeply disturbing, even if it's failing to do so at the moment for, for various reasons. But if people like Frankie Boyle, Stuart Lee, if they were to change their colours, there's, there's a great meme going around at the moment, you know, the one where Homer Simpson disappears into a hedge and then comes back out. And it shows Homer Simpson wearing a mermaid's T-shirt. <laughs> He disappears into the hedge and he comes back out wearing a J.K. Rowling T-shirt. And I do have a feeling that some celebrities might go through that kind of process over the next few years. People like you will will be vindicated. Will you feel uh, generous to those people who treated you in the way that they did? Or do you think you might bear a few grudges for, for a while to come? Well, gen yeah, generous might be pushing it. Um, <laughs> no, I was serious when I said that, like, you know, when I – went after Camp Dankula and when I when I was repeating the same attack points given to me on Gamergate, not really thinking about it properly and not really diving into it and, and going to first sources and all that sort of thing. You know, if if I did it, I have to be a little bit kind to the people who are doing it now, you know. 
Like we can't be lording it over people. You know, I had to, I had to do the the Dankula roast and apologize in front of a bunch of people who were, you know, <laughs> just hate my guts. I didn't do it live. I wasn't that brave enough, but, but <laughs> I wasn't that brave. But like, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, there's certain people. Some of the people who were closest to me treated me the most sadistically. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that's going to be tough. But but there's others who, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's some people who like, like one actor, for instance, who's never stopped ringing me and and, and staying in touch. I won't say who he is because he's too famous and he, he'll get in trouble, you know. But he's never he's never stopped with his kindness to me, you know. And, and but he couldn't say anything publicly because he's an actor, and actors are more vulnerable than most to the whims of other people, you know. So. Someone like John Ronson, he was like a friend for 25 years, and I would have called him a close friend. And for him to do what he did, which is I really think he acts as a kind of, uh, you know, as a stenographer for this movement. I don't think he's behaving honestly at all. And for him to do that and to publicly throw me under the bus in that way, I think even recently he said something like, what they say about J.K. Rowling I think is true of Graham. He actually said that. Right. So, like... Someone like that who's really just covering his arse uh, and refuses to engage with the issues because he knows he's in the wrong, uh, you know. But I don't think I'll have anything to do with ever again. But that's kind of good. That's like a that's like a filleting out of negative people. I used to say, um, and it's and it is true that I used to know only people in the media, and now I know no one in the media. But I know social workers and police women, and I know more than one woman who was at Greenham Common. You know what I mean? I know. Uh, really interesting, uh, brave people from all over the world. I'm a, I'm a very close friend with Derek Jensen, an environmentalist in, in, in the U.S., who's just one of the, one of the most brilliant men. Um, and, you know, all these feminists who normally we would never have had anything to do with each other, probably. Um, and, you know, there's been it's been like a, a kind of... Um, army of, of brave people and, and, and I've had them behind me and talking up for me and defending me from the start. So in many ways, I'm kind of blessed, you know, I mean, I'm staying in this tiny flat now, this, this lovely uh, actor is putting me up while I wait to get into my new place, but the new place is pretty nice and it's in a nice part of London and I've got all these, all these, this circle of friends there that is more various and more interesting than I used to have um, and every one of them is brave. So, uh, yeah, in, in many ways, I feel like I've kind of woken up from one kind of sleep. A sleep we, we perhaps were all in. And I also feel good to come out of the other side of that, too. You know? Thank you for listening. Graham, to thank, the you Brandon Brandon thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.